This week, we're talking concepts. It was awesome having Sean Bory, former CEO of Bebo, on the podcast to chat through a number of them. Sean and I go way back. We went to Duke together, and since then, we've formed a tight-knit friendship as we've gone through a number of different startup experiences as investors and operators. After selling his latest company to Twitch, Sean set out on a host of projects, a podcast that has over 2 million downloads, a $3 million rolling fund to invest in startups, an online course, and a few other ventures. In this conversation, we dug into a bunch of concepts and frameworks both Sean and I have learned over the years. A few of my favorite include how to unpack four years of experience in one, knowing when to shut a project down, the challenges in a business as a function of the CEO's psychology, a five-part framework for change, and a two-by-two for generating startup ideas. This one was a blast. Sean's a total idea machine. Sean, welcome. Pumped to have you on. What's up, man? It's been a long time. People don't know. We, we went to college together. So I know. Uh, I know. Pumped to have you on the show today. Uh, we went to college together. We didn't really know each other that well on campus. but Exactly. I was going to say, there's a bunch of people who, who went to school with us that now are in kind of Silicon Valley scene. But like when I was on campus, we didn't really interact. And there's actually like six or seven different people that are all in that same bucket. Um, And, you know, it's kind of highlights, like, I don't know, when I was in college, it was pretty dumb. I was just hanging out with the six people who lived like on my floor. And then we all became good friends. And we just hung out with each other a bunch. And I never really tried to find other people who were like me or like minded. I didn't really know how to find those other good people. Um, And it's funny that like 10 years later, now I bump into them kind of, and it turns out we had this in common the whole time. It's so funny because you, if you fast forward 10 years, I think a lot of people get the the realization. Like, I think the core realization is people want to do things that are interesting to them and like channel all that ambition, hard work, energy towards that. Um, but I think it takes time. It takes time to realize. Like, I don't think actually we would have hung out a ton on campus because at that point I was a philosophy major set on going to law school. Right. right. And so <laughs> it's, it's a funny, like, it's a funny way things kind of whirl around. Uh, And I was just trying to eat at Chick-fil-A every day. I didn't (laughs) even have, I had no ambition. My biggest ambition was getting to Chick-fil-A before class. (laughs) So Sean, we're going to, we'll dive into a couple things today. Uh, You, you've had a, over the last decade, you've had a pretty interesting, interesting journey and ride uh, through a bunch of startups, successes, failures, you know, lessons. I want to dive a little bit into that. I also want to dive into um, concepts, you know, you and for a lot of our listeners, you and, um, your friend Sam have a podcast on, on for the hustle where you guys riff a ton on different business ideas. Uh, yep. And what we like to do on this show is riff a lot on concepts, right? Things people can grasp towards and then apply in, in their day to day. But before we you know, dive into a bunch of that stuff, give the listeners just a little bit of background on you know, who you are, what your story is. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Sean. And uh, when we were both at Duke, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, I was like, oh, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was pretty certain about that. And then somewhere along the line, I was like, where did this thought come from? I don't, I, what the hell does an orthopedic surgeon even do? And am I good at that? Is that what I like? And I sort of had this like, you know, 20-year-old crisis. And so I went and I, I shadowed a guy who I thought had the dream job. He was a, a surgeon. He was an orthopedic surgeon. He was a team doctor for an NFL team. And I always thought that was sweet. Um, and that was kind of like one of my goals was to, you know, be a be a, a if I can't make it to the league, maybe I can make it to the league through some other back door, which is like being the doctor for the team. And um, after a couple of weeks with him, I was like, this guy's awesome. And actually, I think I could do this. Um, but, but wow, this is kind of a boring, monotonous job. Like you see the same stuff every day. A lot like, it, you know, under the hood, it's a lot less sexy. You're not like uh, helping finely tuned athletes get back on the field. You're much more helping old people deal with pain. And I was like, that's a great thing for people who want to do that. But that's not I don't think I want to do this every day for 10 years, 20 years. 
So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do something else. And um, along those lines, uh, I was lucky that I uh, got the entrepreneurship bug. I had taken this class on campus called Getting Rich, which I thought was just a blow-off class, but turned out to be a, a really transformative class for me where the teacher brought in speakers who were kind of people who had gone and done interesting things uh, that were off the beaten path, not consultants, not lawyers, not doctors, but people who had started companies, started hedge funds. Um, and I just didn't, once I got exposed to that, I couldn't like unsee it. And so I started going down that path. So I, my first thing was this sushi restaurant chain that was going to be the Chipotle of sushi. And then my second thing was a biotech company. And then my third thing was I ran this idea lab for, you know, six years and we baked up a bunch of different apps and social networks and messaging, you know, messaging products. And I got into the kind of the tech world. I was in Silicon Valley during that time. And most recently, um, one of our companies that we, we built in that lab got acquired by Twitch and so uh, my day job is I'm at Twitch and I've been running, uh, you know, mobile and international growth uh, for, for them. Um, and then, you know, as my side hustle, like you said, I do this podcast called My First Million that's gotten pretty popular, which has been a, a real fun ride to, to be a part of. Um, and I invest in companies and bake up a bunch of, you know, small, small businesses that are bootstrap businesses on the side. So talk about talk about the idea lab a little bit more. It used to be called Monkey Inferno, I think. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's right. And, and it has a pretty insane origin story. So talk, give the backstory on the idea lab first, then we'll, we'll dive in a little bit. Yeah. So there's these entrepreneurs, a husband and wife couple, uh, Michael and Zochi Birch, and they had built multiple companies that had been successful. So they had a company called Birthday Alarm. Um, that was a successful company kind of in the early 2000s. And then they built a company called Ringo, which was an early social network before Facebook, and they sold it within two months. Um, and then they sort of realized, hey, maybe we sold that a little too early. And so they did another social network after their non-compete expired, and they built a social network called Bebo. And Bebo was, you know, the third biggest social network in the world at its peak. You know, just it was bigger than Facebook and MySpace internationally. And they sold that to AOL for $850 million. And you know, when you make $800 million, you can decide to do whatever the hell you want with your life. And they were like, well, we don't really, it's not like we were just doing this to make money. Like we actually enjoy coming up with new ideas and, and doing product, you know, new projects. Um, so we're going to keep doing that. And, you know, we don't have to stop just because we made it. And so they basically created a startup studio or an idea lab. There's a bunch of different terms for these things, but they created it. They bought an office in downtown San Francisco and actually it wasn't an office. It was seven condos, I think, smashed together to make this giant three-story office that was like a penthouse. It was like a three-story penthouse. It was amazing. I think it's the best office in San Francisco to this day. Um, has a built-in apartment, has, you know, uh, his private chef would cook lunch for us every day. There's a bar built into the office. It was amazing. Um, and so I ended up, you know, I wanted to work at an idea lab. I wanted to work somewhere where the, the, the framework in my head was, how do I get four years of experience in the next one? Or how do I get 20 years of experience in the next four years? Those, these are the questions I was asking myself. And the answer was, well, you get experience from reps. You get reps, um, you want intense reps. So I thought startup is better than a big company because the intensity is higher. And how do I get a, multiple reps? Well, what if I could have a portfolio of startups that I was involved with rather than just one? I would learn a lot more about different spaces and different business models and whatnot. So I was looking for something like that. I didn't know Idea Labs existed, but once I had that clarity in my head, then when I went to go job search, I remember the first night I went to go look for a job, I saw Monkey Inferno on AngelList and it said, we dream up ideas uh, for, for, for new internet businesses and then we build them. And I was like, that's cool. And I saw their story and I was like, 
um, I want to be a part of this. And so then I hustled my way and, you know, <laughs> somehow squeezed into the, to that lab. And how, how did you think about, and it might've been different. I imagine it was different at the time of joining versus, uh, and then I was, I think there was, if I'm, if I'm correct, I think there was a point in time where you went from not just, you know, being an employee, but running the lab yeah. and then kind of down the line. How did you along that way think about kind of this idea of an idea lab, right? So I, I think outside in actually from, from my perspective, and I've, I've never been on an idea lab, it just seems, it seems tough, right? Aligning incentives, you know, the brute force of kind of pushing through an idea, um, yeah. I, I would sense that, you know, and I see this all the time in our, our business that I lead, you know, when something's tough, you don't, you don't really have an option, right? Like you kind of just have to push through on that idea. Like there's, there's Absolutely. something that can bake. Um, so talk a little bit more about kind of the idea lab concept, um, and how, how it panned out. Yeah. So the, you know, the premise of, of this idea lab, and there's a few variations you can do, but was we would have three or four different projects going at once, small teams that were working on each. It was structured in like a communal way. So we, we, you weren't just rooting for your projects. Any, if, if any of the projects worked, we all won. So everybody owned equity in all the projects, which I thought was really unique and aligned everybody's incentives to help each other out. Um, so in theory, it was great, right? You get the fun of working on a bunch of different things. You get the portfolio approach where maybe one bet will work and the other bets, you know, if they don't pan out, no big deal. Um, and your aligned incentives where you get equity in everything. So you have a portfolio as an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs have one basket with all their eggs in it. And um, so that's all great. Now, the problem is exactly what you identified, which is every business goes through these like S curves. And there's like the initial ramp up where you can make a lot of progress very quickly, building a prototype, talking to customers, whatever. And then they hit this point where they plateau, they hit some adversity, right? Like things don't just instantly grow. You have to like figure out how to get them to grow or, or they're growing and you have to get them to scale. You have to like build the platform better. And so what ended up happening, I felt in the idea lab, and I can't prove this, but what I felt ended up happening was when one project would hit adversity, it was very easy to just let your eyes and mind wander toward the other projects, which are still early in their S curves, making a bunch of progress. And you're like, Oh yeah. Like, you wouldn't actually consciously say, screw this idea, I'm gonna go work on this other one. But you wouldn't push through in the same way as an entrepreneur when you've told your mom and your the whole world, I'm doing this venture. You raise money from people promising them that you're gonna do this venture and you're gonna make it succeed no matter what. And you hire a team for this project. That's like you're all in and you have to find a way around the obstacle or die. And that do or die pressure is the one asset that startups have and it's the one thing that startup studios or idea labs lack. And so I felt that that was a structural um, force working against us. Now, maybe it's an excuse. Maybe we could have just run it better. Maybe we could have been more disciplined. But I've noticed this because a lot of successful entrepreneurs start labs because it sounds fucking awesome, right? You get a bunch of money. You don't need investors. You don't want to work on one thing. You, wanna, you have 10 ideas that you like. And you're going to have this lab. You're just going to cook up little ideas and you're going to see what sticks. And I've noticed, if you just go look at the track record, very, very, very few of these labs have ever had even one product work. And I think that this is why. You guys had a lot of traction coming out of the gate with, um, with, with Blab. You had kind of that Bitmoji competitor for a while uh, yep. that I thought outside in was going to be, was like the home run product, right? Yep. And you had a lot of traction out of the gate with, I think, multiple of these ideas. Talk a little bit more about... Um, two things. One is I think you, you've talked previously, we, we've talked about kind of the framework of like how to know when to shut something down. And I think that's an important lesson, right? But the other part is outside in, it's always very difficult to look outside in and say, you know, hey, there's a ton of velocity. It seems like it's really kicking off. Obviously, when you're in the inside of a business, right, you know, the intrinsics. 
Um, what was the preventer for some of those ideas that looked super promising from the outside and I think had really happy users also from right. getting you know, to that next curve as, as a business? So I've, I've, I now have a couple of theories. One theory is that the inside of every company is super dysfunctional. <laughs> and um, you know, it just seems like a mess. It seems like, man, we don't have our shit together. Maybe I'm just unlucky. Maybe maybe other people have or have at companies and they're like, that's no, not I, us. I, I don't actually. Yeah, I think that's actually from from lots of. I'm sure you've had lots of conversations with peer founders, entrepreneurs, et cetera. Same thing. I I don't think that's a. I don't think that's a unique feeling. I, I actually think that's why founders need and entrepreneurs need to talk to each other more. It's almost like mental yeah, health. This is normal because yeah. it's normal. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say we were dysfunctional, but the other theory is basically even successful products the line between success and failure is so thin sometimes. Um, so even when you have product market fit, you can be on the verge of, of, of fucking it up um, very easily. And for us, what we found was we would bake up products that would get, in, like with the two you mentioned, they had a lot of momentum out of the gate and they actually had good growth, good top line growth. But the sticking, you know, we, you need the three-legged stool to be successful. One leg is growth. Uh, the next leg is stickiness. That when somebody, when you get this growth, do they actually stick around or they churn out a month later? And the third is revenue or business model. And so we would always get one of the three legs. We would get either growth without stickiness and without business model. Uh, business model just comes later. So, so I think we would, we would have ended up with two of the three legs in all, all the cases. Or we'd get stickiness without the growth. And so in, in the two that you mentioned, the crazy avatar messaging bitmoji type of competitor was was uh, actually quite sticky um or, or sorry that one was uh, sticky once it once it, it grew but then the growth stopped because of um the novelty wore off the viral the viral loop wore off of people sharing their characters like crazy and so we had like half a million downloads in the first 60 days and then like I don't know, a hundred thousand in the next month and the next month. And it was just, it was going downhill. It was not, and we had no way to, to, to stimulate it. We couldn't think of a good way for blab. We had good growth and crappy stickiness. Um, so we continually had good growth, but we were only retaining 10% of our customers who would come back the next month. And so even though everybody on the outside, it looked like it was growing and all these new people were coming in, that was true. But only if you kind of were under the hood, you could see how leaky the bucket was. And so that's when we knew, well, this is a fundamental problem. We would spend six to 12 months trying to fix that problem and make it stickier or make it grow. And if we ended up firing all our bullets and we're like, look, we don't have a credible idea that we stand behind that we think will fix this issue um, or set of ideas, then we knew it was time to pivot. And um, I think the one mistake, I think we correctly pivoted in all cases. I think the mistake we made was we pivoted so radically that like maybe we just needed to pivot into slightly adjacent use case. So in retrospect, I think that would have been a smarter, a smarter thing to do. Our, our Bitmoji thing, we could have literally, we could have just gone and sold the company. I think it had value. Um, or we could have turned it into a keyboard or something else rather than trying to be, a, we were trying to be a messenger, which is like competing with Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp. I mean, these are giant, giant products with super strong network effects. And we knew we wanted to be that because if you get there, it's super valuable. But once the writing was on the wall that, hey, people aren't going to, people love the little characters and the little imagery that it creates, but they don't want another messenger. We should have doubled down on the characters and the, and the art and not, um, and not tried to be a messenger. But instead we pivoted to Blab, which was a totally different product. 
And when we pivoted from Blab, we pivoted to a totally different product. And I think that's where we were a little too hasty. So as an entrepreneur, you sort of learn those lessons. And do you think retroactively if you guys, um, and it sounds like, and not you know specific to the idea lab, but I think in general, right, when you're venture backed or you know, you're building a technology company, typically it's, you know, unlike a non-technology company, right? Oftentimes it's very much so like you're making your money on the exit, right? So it's very much so attributed to let's hit a home run or like let's hit nothing. It's it's not really fall in the middle. It sounds like there could have been a potential if this was the mindset of like, let's just consistently hit like one, like single and a half double, right? But like consistently hit some of those. Do you think if that mentality was there more so at the outset versus this kind of idea of like, let's hit a home run on every single idea, you guys could have generated multiple doubles or, or no? I don't think so. Um, so I think in, in the tech space, uh, a small project and a big project both take up all your time. Might as well go for the big projects. Um, and, and I don't think that there's a light, I don't think you get sort of a, so I don't think it was about going for too large of a home run. First, it was more exciting. We recruited better talent because we were going for big prizes. Sure. Yep. Michael, who was the investor was like, look, you know, we built a social network. We almost built the Facebook but we didn't get there. We ended up selling. And although we had a good exit, like we can do more. We can go for a billion dollar plus outcome. We could build a consumer product that changes culture. We could build a lasting product rather than one that grew and then kind of sold and then went nowhere. Um, so that was his, his dream. And I was like, hey, that sounds amazing. I'm, I'm on board with that. If you want to swing for the fences, I'm down to swing for the fences too. I was a 25 year old kid. I was like, might as well take the biggest shot I can. No problem. So I, th- I think the ambition part of it and the home run versus double, triple, uh, double single. Like, I don't necessarily think it's easier to get a small win. I think it still takes up a lot of time and effort. The thing that I do think is different is we went into, and this is where I think maybe you were going with this. We went into consumer social, which is a very hit or miss exactly. business. Yep. And um, there were other models that would have had a higher likelihood of success uh, that could have been just as big, but like consumer social, you will swing and miss a lot more. Um, than going for, let's say, a B2B SaaS company, which also could fail many, many times. But consumer social is particularly lightning and a bottle-ish compared to other, other types of projects you can do. So your last, the last idea was titled Bebo. Is that right? The one that sold to Twitch? Yeah. So this is kind of a funny story. Company, so but yeah. he, sells, he sells Bebo to AOL. AOL sells it to a private equity guy. A year later, they just write it off as a tax write-off. Facebook takes over the world. Many years later, that guy kind of didn't really do anything with it. We find out Bebo is going to go into sort of bankruptcy. Um, the, the private equity firm that, that was doing it, the guy was kind of a crook, uh, didn't end up, um, he was just siphoning off money from the company, wasn't really trying to build it. And so Michael tells me, hey, we have the chance to buy Bebo back. Um, we don't know how much it's going to cost, but there's going to be an auction you know, next week in LA. Do you want to do this? It's a brand name. It's a short domain. It's got an email list that's big. If we did happen to turn it around, that would get a lot of buzz because um, they'd be like, oh, it's back. But it's going to be really hard. Internet companies rarely come back. Do you want to do it? And so again, we took, a hot, we took a swing for a home run of trying to do a hard thing, which is revive an internet company. And this was after MySpace had just tried to revive itself with like Justin Timberlake and all this shit, and it totally failed. So I was like, okay, if we do this, we can't bring it back as a social network. It's going to be something else altogether. And so we went and we ended up buying Bebo back for a million dollars. So, you know, for the, for those keeping score at home, sell high, buy low, right? Sell for 850, buy for one. And, uh, and then we ended up selling it again. Right to Twitch. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that was, that was, that was a, a nice thing. It wasn't anywhere near the sort of financial success that it could have been, or that the first one was, but, um, but that was the, that was how we got that brand name back. And then we ended up doing something completely different with it, which was a, 
uh, live streaming platform for for esports, and that's what uh, Twitch ended up buying. Yep. And so you you've talked about this before, Sean. I really like the way you've articulated this, but this is kind of a framework on how you think about um, a transaction, right? And I, and I think it's the way you framed it, which I think is spot on. Is companies get bought, not sold. Talk a little bit more about what that framework means uh, and apply it to the you know the Bebo transaction to Twitch. Yeah, actually, the the way I would really look at it is you're either bought or sold, but they're very different. Um, bot is your Instagram. You are hot. It's working. You're a threat to the incumbents, and they need to buy you because they fear you, um, or they buy you because they think you're the future. And you have investors knocking on your door saying, no, keep this independent. We'll fund it. Let's go for the home run, the grand slam maybe. And then you have Google, Facebook, and everybody, everybody else who says, we want, you know, you're the best thing since sliced bread. Like, we want to buy you. And then you have companies that get sold. We were in the sold bucket. Sold bucket is, hey, this didn't quite work, but there's something here. And you have to go and actually sell this thing. There's usually not people knocking on your door, begging you to buy you and bidding. There's not a bidding war. You have to create buyers. You have to create bids. And you have to try to create demand for your product, team, traction, whatever you got, whatever your assets are. And so we were in the sold category. It's actually like, I think the best work I did the whole time at the Idea Lab was selling the company <laughs> because I think we had a pretty weak hand and we parlayed it into a, a, a good sale. Um, and I wish I had been as successful at building the companies to, you know, to an independent success as I was at selling the companies. But you know, that's, again, a uh, lesson learned for myself. All the problems I talked about, by the way, for the Idea Lab, they ultimately are my problem. Like I could have solved any one of those things and I didn't. And so I have this theory that, you know, the problems in any business are due to the psychology and capability of the, of the CEO. And, um, and so now when I look back and I say, oh man, this was, it was hard for this reason. Um, nobody put a gun to my head and said, you have to do consumer social. Nobody put a gun to my head and said, you have to do four ideas at once. Um, you know, all, whatever the ideas, whatever the reasons I think that were against me were my own doing, or, or I didn't take action to undo them. I think that's such a good insight because, you know, from running a company, you know, my personal experience is, and, and a lot of peers that I've talked to kind of thought through similarly is the DNA of your company in so many senses takes after your own psychology, right? After your own risk tolerance, after your biases. That's, that's why I think self-awareness is the strongest actually characteristic of, you know, anybody that wants to be in business or lead at any scale. Um, right. There's a lot of things I, I had to work on over the last year or so where I'd say, hey, I'm either cost-minded or not as aggressive and how does that actually trickle down and then parlay into strategy, right? Which translates into work plans and so on and so forth. Right. Um, so I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a really good insight. Just before this call, I was on a call because uh, I've raised this investment fund and I was looking yeah. for what I call my fund hustler. Who's somebody who, want, who wants a shot at investing in, in 25, 50 startups. They want to, they want to actually jump the career ladder and, and, and be, be a hustler for this fund. Um, and so I was talking to somebody and they were telling me about their startup that failed. And I said, why did it fail? And this is a very easy like thing to, to find out. You, yeah. when, some, when you ask why something failed, the shorter the answer, the better. Um, if it's a long answer, they still don't even understand why the hell they failed. And um, also if the answer is I or we, that's better than, um, you know, when they blame the market, the competitors, market. The, the funding environment, the blah, 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 blah. When it's like, the real answer is, I thought this, but actually it was that, yeah. or I made this decision. And in retrospect, that was a poor decision for these reasons. And I would have been better served doing this. That's the type of answer you should give. And when I was talking to this guy, he, he gave me the answer of like, 
well, the problem was in the market and the problem was this. It's like, well, who chooses the market? Exactly. <laughs> you, it, it always boils. When you're, when you're an entrepreneur and you're running a business, it always fundamentally boils down to a couple of things, right? One is actually, it's either raw decisions that for some reason looked right, or you had a certain kind of belief of the world that didn't transpire. Um, the second buck is it, it can be, that was the right decision, but you guys just didn't execute against it, right? Um, or the third is just, it's a, it's a misplaced hypothesis. Some, right. Something in your assumption set was off, right? right. And if you change that assumption set or you change the fact base or you change your bias on top of which you're looking at the problem, right? You either would have pivoted, right? And then the question is the scale of change and so on and so forth, right? Are you a, you know, are you a boat torpedoing against an iceberg and you can't, you know, shift fast enough, right? What's the dynamics of the actual company, right? right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think that accountability is in short supply, but even, even more so than that, honestly, is a lot of people want to be accountable, but yeah. very few people even know the truth. I just say like reality is also in short supply. Most people are so wrapped up and twisted. They, they don't even know the reality. Why did your company fail? Um, you know, wh why is your company going to succeed? Like what is the biggest challenge you face right now? There's like, there's this elephant in the room and they'll do everything they can to like strain their neck to look around. Oh, you know, where's this elephant? I, I don't see this elephant you're talking about. Um, and it's so strange to me. And, and now now that I'm investing in companies, um, that's the number one thing I look the first for. first thing you want to find, yeah. Exactly. Does this person have an accurate view of reality? Yep. And if they don't, um, it's very, very hard for me to trust that they're going to navigate reality and, and overcome it um, or, or work with it, you know, because they can't even see it. Because company building is not a, it's not a one-shot wonder, right? It's sustained judgment. And I think that's the key thing that you're right. ultimately looking for, right? I, I, the accountability thing is interesting. The way I've heard it, which, I, which really resonates with me, is everybody wants to be responsible, but not that many people want to be accountable. Yes. Right? Um, Have you ever heard of this thing, the, the RACI model? You're, you're in consul yeah. your consulting background. So yeah, 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 yeah. This is, uh, this is helpful. We, I don't know if we used to sell those for a million a pop, Sean. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what did you, you, how did you package that? How do you sell that? Is that just a, well, so there's so many different, there's different ways, right? I think it's interesting too, because this is, it's a little bit of a tangent, but consulting is so much, I think outside in, right. Whenever people think about consultants and kind of what makes a good top tier consultant, right. Oftentimes the thought process is, Hey, these guys have to be the smartest at the Excel model, right. Or they must know, the market dynamics better than everybody else. So there's some secret database where they know, you know, every competitor's pricing and et cetera. The best, the best consultants are just like world-class EQ guys and gals, right? Like they have a really good understanding of saying, Hey, you're leading this really big enterprise. And by the way, like your body language sucks, right? right. Or the way that you're perceiving, like what you're, what you're shifting all your resources to do is you're telling your team basically to react to just some sort of assumption you have that another competitor is going to do, right? And so, so much of consulting is actually, um, and this is where I think it's it's like two sides of the same coin. Is I won't drink the Kool Aid too much, even though I did it for a while. Is, is a lot of it can be fluff, and that's how a lot of people kind of perceive it as, hey, you know, haha, get the McKinsey guys in; they're just going to throw a deck in; it's all useless. Um, but the flip side of that, and I'm a firm believer that strengths and weaknesses are two sides of the same coin. I think the other side of that actually is a lot of the value is actually in observation, seeing the data points and repackaging into a way that was not clearly articulated or communicated in the organization. Right. Consultant's job is never to come in and say, aha, I have found the light bulb. It's to say, you have some matches, you have some wood, you have a little bit of wind that can create a fire. 
right? You had all the raw ingredients already in the organization, but for whatever it was, you guys weren't putting it together that the matches, the wind and the wood, right? Were the ingredients for the fire, right? right. So it was always, I mean, whenever we would sell these things, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of the conversation we would have to have with the senior leaders and the senior leaders got it. It was actually always the, the second team and the team under, partially because half the time they thought you were coming in, you were a threat to their job. So that was actually <laughs> the biggest difficulty in getting action. But the, 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 the engagements that I was on that actually had a ton of impact versus the engagements I was on that failed, right? And I was on both types were actually the ones where, you know, people really could kind of sell the belief and the sowing of the seeds versus, you know, some magical Excel answer on the discount rate of the cash right. flow and the this, that, and the other, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, that, that's, I think that's a great way of putting it. And I think a fair, um, a fair observation. And, you know, we, I have this phrase that I always say, which is um, people used to uh, react, when in my company, people used to react to advice either from external or internal that was like, well, yeah, that's obvious. Um, okay. And it's like, yeah, it is obvious. Um, and it's also simple. And we just used to start, we started to say this thing, which is, you know, simple truths told repeatedly are very valuable. Yeah. Um, and because it's like, how much is simple and obvious that we do not do, that we do not follow, or we don't follow enough? Um, rarely is the answer some complex, um, mysterious magic bullet. No, it's usually something that's obvious, that's simple, that's not being acted on well. And it, it it actually is useful to hear a simple truth again um, because if you hear it at the right time, you might actually start to execute on it and, and actually take action. And I think that actually aggravates a lot of people subconsciously. So I had, I had Morgan Housel on the podcast. And I love Morgan's writing. Um, he has a way of taking like very, very, very things, good, right. Very complex things into very simple things. And he has an article. We talked about this on the podcast, which was basically like, here's the key or here's the trick to like succeeding in life. And it was like a laundry list of like 20 things. And it was literally like, you know, you want to be a great writer, write good things. You want to be fit, go to the gym. Like it was, it was so pan obvious. Right. Right. But the nuance and the difficulty is like, it's not that the answer was, Hey, you want to be fit go to the gym was like this earth shattering observation. It was like, how many people in the world are going to go 200 out of 350 days? Right. And do the same thing, you know, 30 days in a row, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And so then the question is, okay, so if most of the answers are simple, right. And whatever problem somebody who's listening to this is having, uh, the answer is, is actually extremely simple, whatever it is. I don't care if it's a relationship problem, uh, relationship problem. The answer is give and stop measuring what you're getting. Um, if it's, uh, if it's exercise or if it's fitness, it's, um, you know, go, go exercise and eat, you know, clean foods and not too much. Boom, done. Uh, you know, if it's your career, it's like, um, hey, work on what you enjoy because you will um, do it more and more often and you'll get good at it over time. Just play the long game. Yep. Boom, done. Uh, and so there's all these like very obvious things. And then, so, so that's, that's useful. And that's like step one. And then you say, okay, so then what should we be talking about? And this is kind of what the consultant that you were talking about, you know, being able to identify that, hey, the ingredients are all here. They're not being put together. So then the question is, why aren't you going to the gym? Yep. And, and it's like, if the answer is obvious, why is the action not being taken? That's the obvious action. What's preventing the action? And that's actually a much more productive conversation than what is the answer? Oh, no, it must be some other answer because it's not happening for me. Well, it's not happening for you because you're not debugging the issue of why you're not doing the simple thing. You, you asked earlier, kind of like, how did we sell a change? And it, it takes me back to this, which is, so the core kind of value, at, the core like value or principle of the firm at McKinsey was be a distinctive problem solver. 
And everything boiled down to like this idea of problem solving. But we had this framework where we talked about change, which was change had, um, I, I, I don't remember, McKinsey coined this or somebody probably put it out there, but it was some sort of permutation, but it was effectively like change, to get to change, you had to have five ingredients. It was vision, skills, incentives, resources, and action plan. And there was this like nice clean visual, which was basically like, you know, if you have, you know, four out of the five, but you're missing one of those distinct things, it leads to a different outcome. So if you have skills, incentives, resources, and action plan, but you have no vision, it leads to confusion, right? right. If you have vision, incentives, resources, action plan, but you don't have any skills, it leads to anxiety, right? You don't have incentives, it's resistance. You don't have resources, you know everything you need to do, it's frustration, right? right. So it was always kind of boiling and saying like, is, does this company, do they have the right strategy? Do they have the right people? Are incentives aligned? They have enough cash, capital, whatever it is. And then do they have an execution muscle? Right. And if you can figure out which one of those, and you know, oftentimes like great companies, it was like all five and something is still missing because every company can improve. Like crappy companies, it was like three of those five are missing. <laughs> right? It was always somewhere on the curve. But that was a really nice, actually, like the same way we, you know, we orient around like health of company by looking at like a balance sheet or an income statement, just like basic building block language. It was a really nice way to actually articulate like, guys, you actually like, it's, it's not your strategy that's the problem. You just have like no resources, right? Yeah. Or you have no, like your incentives are all messed up. Like your VP of this wants to do this because their comp structure is based on this. And your VP of this wants to do that because their comp structure is based on whatever, right? right. What I like about that is, um, what I like about that is that you're, 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 you triggered a different thought in my head, which is, it sounded like when one thing is missing, let's say the action plan is, I don't know if this is exactly what you said, but let's say the action plan is missing. So you feel anxiety because you got the vision, you have the yep. skills, you have the incentives, you have the resources, but you don't know where to start. And then it hasn't been laid out of what, 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 what that is. Or um, if you have frustration, it's because you don't have the resources. Maybe. Exactly. Yep. And so what it gives you is a map because you can basically pulse check the, the people who are, you know, the, the team, and you can say, wow, frustration seems to be the core emotion that they're, they're experiencing. And that's their, core. if I, if I look past what they're saying and what they think the problem is, I just look at the emotion. Okay. It's frustration or it's anxiety or it's uncertainty. Then I know uncertainty, boom, vision is the problem. Uh, anxiety, boom, action plan is the problem. And then you can sort of map back and you have a recipe for where you can go solve it. Right. So it's like a doctor doing a diagnosis. You're basically reading these signals and you're saying, okay, cool. I know what the issue is. And um, I don't think companies do this. So like right now I'm in a company, it's a 2000 person company, right? And we do all these like surveys, uh, pulse surveys and engagement surveys, people trying to figure out, you know, are, are people happy and whatnot? And the answer is always like this mixed bag. Some people are happy, some people are not. Some groups in particular are, are less happy than others. And then they, I think the problem is um, they try to ask, you know, why? What do you think is lacking? And it's always the same thing. It's like, you know, collaboration is hard um, or we don't have enough resources. Everybody thinks they don't have enough resources or it's, um, you know, the vision is unclear or it's like, Hey, everything's too top down. Or when everything is really democratic, it's like, we don't have enough top down leadership. It's like one or the other, it just flip flops from year to year because the manager team's like reacting to the, the results of the survey. And I actually think that um, there's this rule. And when you build products, which is you can go, oh, when you, it's good to talk to customers, but the rule is you talk to them about their problem, not about what they think the solution should be. Yeah. And same thing I think should be done for companies, which is you should talk to them about the problem and the emotion and not what they think the, the reason behind reason for the problem is because they're probably wrong about what the reason they think is. Yeah. Um, and if you knew, if you knew the emotions, you could sort of map back to where you think the problem is pretty reliably. I do this for myself, right? If I'm feeling 
anxiety, then I have a, a recipe. I don't stay in anxiety. I have a recipe that says, oh, if anxiety, that means I'm focused on time. Time is what causes anxiety pressure. If I'm focused on time or lack of time, uh, you know, here's what I actually do to reframe that so that I feel better. Boom. And so I have these little pathways that I map out. So now if I'm feeling something, I don't stay in that feeling. I say, boom, let me open up the recipe book and let me get to a good feeling that I want to be at. At the, at the company level, you know, it was always interesting because what that would result in is obviously some sort of engagement or where we go deeper, et cetera, once you kind of did some sort of diagnosis. Um, you know, we consultants are always made fun of for their two by twos. You have a two by two that I really <laughs> like, and it is one of the first, I, I think it's, I don't know if it's an original you came up with, but I, it really, I've never heard it before and I really like it. It's this concept of, you know, ideas versus solutions. I'll let you talk about it a bit more, but talk about that two by two, because actually when I think back to my consulting days, actually that framework was, and you know, as you can imagine, we doled out tons of frameworks, but it actually, that encapsulates very cleanly, like what the bridge was actually from this kind of diagnosis to the right. plan itself. Yeah. So I have this little two by two box thing that I do, which is it's around ideas. And so, um, like I said, my, po my podcast is all about ideas. We just brainstorm a bunch of half-baked business ideas. And a lot of people ask like, how do you come up with all these ideas? A big part of it's just observation. But if you have frameworks that lets you kind of be a better observer because you know what you're looking at. You can sort of put patterns against what you're looking at and say, oh, I know how to, it's like, uh, I think Charlie Munger said this. He has a lattice of fr frameworks in his head, a mental models model. that yeah. he can, he can go hang, you know, different pieces of evidence on, on that lattice. Uh, and that, that, that visual works for me too, which is when I see something, I go into my head and I hang it. I'm like, oh, this is another example of working in public. Or this is another example of working backwards from the solution you have in mind or whatever, right? And so one of my mental models is when it comes to ideas, you can think of basically the problem and the solution. And so imagine a two by two grid, uh, four little squares. And so on the left side, you have, let's say the problem. And the problem can either be an old problem or a new problem. Let's say an old problem is like, I wanna meet, you know, I wanna uh, meet a, a, a spouse. Cool. That, that problem's existed for many, many years. Our parents solved that problem by putting ads in the newspaper and doing arranged marriages in India. I don't know if yours did, but that's how mine did. Yep. Um, and then, you know, now people put their profile on, on Tinder and they swipe left and right until they find a match, right? Same, same idea. Um, so old problem, that's an example of old problem. A new problem is I own cryptocurrency and I don't know how to do my taxes for it because it's complicated. That's a new problem. Didn't exist five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was. Um, and then on the solution, same thing, old solution, new solution. So Tinder being an app that you can swipe left or right and just quickly go through matches in your area using your GPS coordinates, that's a new solution um, to an old problem. Um, or you can, if you built TurboTax for crypto, that's an old solution to a new problem, right? And so as long as you can match an old and a new, you have potential to do something interesting. And so if you wanna think of great business ideas, you wanna be an entrepreneur, one easy way to do it is to start paying attention to what are new problems that didn't exist five years ago. Um, maybe it's, hey, now there's millions of Uber drivers and they all kind of need health insurance because this is their job, but this job doesn't come with health insurance. Maybe I can build a platform that provides health benefits to Uber drivers, right? And you can come up with that idea if you observe new, pro new problem classes. Same thing with new solution classes, which is, um, Oh, I noticed that people are doing, you know, sharing economy. Oh, wow. They just get somebody to, 
Airbnb, they just got somebody to put up a resource they already have, like their house and, uh, or a bedroom in their house, and they let somebody rent it out. Well, could I do that with my car? Yes. Oh, boom. Then you create, you know, whatever that startup is that does that, you know, uh, get around or whatever it is. And so, um, and the easy way to do it is to match old and new. So if you have a new problem, go for an old solution. Don't do a new solution to an old problem. Or sorry, to a new problem. So, so that's the kind of the, it's, it's much easier to, to visualize. So this is the audio version of me doing something that normally I just draw on the whiteboard and it's done in 10 seconds. No, I like that. I like that framework a lot. And Sean, you're doing a couple, you're doing a couple interesting things. You mentioned your fund earlier, um, but you have this new thing called all access pass, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because I imagine a lot of the people that you're attracting to it are people that are saying, okay, great. You know, I've got an idea or maybe I've thought of something, but I don't really know how to get started. Right. Yeah. Um, so we could, we could spend a whole, you know, other couple extra hours on <laughs> concepts here, but at, at a high level, talk about kind of all access pass. And I think there's some nuances, right. Of um, there's, there's some nuances of, or there's, there's a tension between, I think something else you've said in the past, which is kind of this idea of just like, don't blindly follow people. But obviously what people are doing here is like, they are, they are following you to a certain degree. Right. But there's a nuance there of like, this kind of guiding and framework versus like blind following. So yeah. talk, talk a little bit more about all access pass. And then I know you have a pretty uh, semi-controversial idea that I think is really interesting, which is just like most people try to follow what other people are doing. So talk a little bit more about both of those things. Yeah. So all access pass, basically the podcast got popular over the last year and it's all about ideas. So naturally my DMs every morning are, Hey, I got this idea or I heard that idea on the podcast. How would you go about this? How should I start this? I either I have no idea where to start or I would do this, but how would you approach it? And I really got, I, you know, I felt bad because I don't have time to reply to all these. And there's no answer. Like, I can't tell you how you should do your startup. It's like so much figuring it out. It's like, you got to be, it's like saying, how do I wander through this forest? It's like, I don't know. I'd have to be walking around and I'd see what I saw and I'd make decisions along the way. And so I don't think there's an answer of how to execute. But I knew that there was this big demand in my, my community, my audience at least, for people who wanted to become better at executing. Um, it is a master skill. If you know how to execute, you can pretty much go do anything and be successful with it. Um, but it's a skill that's honed over time. So I thought about how did I get good at this? And I was like, well, one of the ways that I, you know, the, the real answer is you go get your ass kicked for 10 years and then you'll get good by the end if you, if you don't give up and you're smart. Um, okay. But that's the long, hard road. Could I save people time? I thought what sped me up? And I said, well, the moments where I was working with um, or alongside other people who were, had done, been doing this for longer than me, I picked up on a lot of things that they did, how they approached different problems, how they organized their day, what they focused on, their frameworks, their templates. And those were really, really useful. And so I wanted to give people that opportunity. So I was like, how can I make it so that it's like anybody sitting right next to me at my desk and they can see what I see on my screen. And they can see how I work on a day-by-day -day basis, launching these and so I promise I'm going to do three new ventures. Each one is going to be a million dollar plus venture. Um, and I'm going to launch them all in the next four or five months. And, um, and so I said, I'm going to make that available to anybody. Um, and so I basically, I was like, I'm going to charge 150 bucks for this and let's see if anybody wants to do this. Um, this thing is taken off. And so uh, it, it's, it's super popular now, which is kind of blowing my mind. And I hope people are really liking it. The feedback I get is really good, but um, I'm just showing people on a day-to-day -day basis. What did I focus on? How did I, you know, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? How did I solve it that day? What dead ends did I run into? I'm showing like the mistakes too, not just like, boom, I did it. It all just worked. Yeah. Um, and so I think people really like to see that kind of like work in public, which is one of my kind of like core tenets. Uh, I think there's a lot of benefits 
to working in public rather than being very stealthy or waiting until everything's figured out before you go show the world. I think people like to see the journey and I think people start to root for you when they see you trying. Um, I think Pixar has this great line, which is that um, they won't, the, you know, the, the audience doesn't love the, the hero because they're a hero that wins. They love the hero because of how, they, how, how hard they try. And um, so I thought, I, you know, I took that into my own work and I, and I decided to, to work in public as I did these different things. So I launched my fund. That was the first one. And yep. we raised a, a $2.6 million a year um, rolling fund. And we did that. Wild. You raised it in like five days or something maniacal. Yeah, 10, 10 days. Amazing. And so, you know, and I showed people, how did I make my pitch deck? How did I cold out, cold email investors? How did I, you know, answer questions? How did I position the fund so that it would stand out from what else was out there? And so I just, the fund is a product and I showed how I, how I did that, how I raised money. A lot of people don't know how to raise money. And so I tried to show how I would approach it. And it doesn't mean I can do it so you can too. There's no promise like that. But I'm just saying, here's how I did it. Most people don't show you anything. So I'm going to show it to you. I hope you can learn some things along the way that apply to you and, and maybe can sharpen up your own execution ability. So we're, we're rounding out the hour here, Shauna. We'll have to do this again because I think we've got to talk for a, for a ton longer. But if you, if you kind of pair out, you know, you're doing a ton of things, right? You're at Twitch. You just sold a company. You're doing a podcast. You're doing an online course. You have a fund. You have kind of all these side projects, right? Um, when you fast forward kind of 50 years from now, like what, what do you want Sean Pori to be known for, right? Like when you're looking back, like what, what ultimately is a sentence or, you know, paragraph, whatever it is that, that you want to be said about you or defines you? Uh, I want to be a teacher. So, um, you know, I hope that, you know, when it's all said and done that I set this goal for myself, I want to be for 70 million people, which is 1% of today's population. Um, for 70 million people, I want to be one of their favorite teachers, somebody they learn from and help them like live a better life in some way. And uh, my version of teaching is very different. I'm not in a classroom and I'm not lecturing. Uh, I teach through other methods, but ultimately that's, that's what I like doing the most. And I think that is the best use of time is if you can use, I, I sort of had this realization a few years ago. If you have talents, you can build one venture. That's great. But if what you did instead was unlock, you know, 10% more out of all, you know, millions of other people to, who are each going to go do their own ventures, that is like the scalable way to make an impact in, 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 you know, in the world. And I don't, I'm not like kind of a hippy dippy, like I, I care about making an impact. That's not really it. I just genuinely like doing it, right? Like uh, I like talking. I like doing stuff in public. I like uh, helping people out who can learn. I like learning myself. And then when I learn something, I'm so excited about it. It's like, I just want to tell everybody. And so inadvertently, I'm a teacher. Why? Because I really am just like kind of a curious student. But every time I see something, every time I learn something that to me, it's like a nugget of gold. And I can't wait to tell everybody about it. And then when other people like it too, then they didn't have to do all the digging to find the gold. It was sort of, um, you know, presented to them. And it's on them if they're going to do anything with it. But that's ultimately what I, what I would love, you know, Tombstone to be, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was so many people, you know, X number of people's favorite teacher. Um, somebody who made a big, big um, impact on them. They felt they learned a lot from me. So I think that would be the most fulfilling version of my life. I, I really like the Japanese philosophy Ikigai. And I, I forget, I always forget the four tenants, but at least three of them are, you know, do what you love, do what the world values uh, and do what you're good at. And, and I, I, I have a sense that we're all going to be watching along, you know, as, as you go down that journey on, on teaching a lot of people. So it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. We'll have to have you back on. We'll talk about a bunch more concepts, but you know, Sean, it was a, it was a ton of fun to have you on, on the show today. Thanks for making the time. 
Yeah, thanks, man. It was fun. Good conversation. Cool, man. Sweet. Awesome. Well, we'll have to we'll have to get you back on, man.